attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Hey, it's Jeff here. What you're about to hear is the recording from our weekly Context and Clarity live show that I co-host with Catherine McPhail. Every week, we bring in a special guest that will help us dig even deeper and find even more clarity around the most popular context and clarity topics. This version of context and clarity is simulcast to Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitch. Oh, and did I mention that they're live? We're operating without a net, so we may hit a few rough patches and stumble every once in a while. But I think these guests and these conversations are important enough that we really shouldn't keep them to ourselves. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome to the Entree Architect Community Context and Clarity Live session. I'm joined today by Catherine McPhail, my co-host on these Thursday Context and Clarity Lives. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm I'm excellent. How are you? I am well now that I've actually hit the go live button. Mm. Um, <laughs> the reason that we come here every weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern and specifically on Thursdays in this live version that will we are simulcasting not only to the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, but also to LinkedIn and to YouTube and to Twitch is so that we can find clarity around the things that matter most to you. Um, many of you are small firm architects, but because we're outside, we've spread ourselves all over the internet today. We know that some of you may not be architects. You might be other creative services providers. You might be other professional services firms, maybe leaders, maybe employees, whoever you are, wherever you are, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us in this conversation today. The way this works is that once a week, we pick a topic. It's a need to know topic for the success of small firm architects, for other professional services folks. And on these Thursdays, these special editions on Thursdays, we invite a special guest to join us so that we can dig even deeper 
into the topic, into the conversation. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Also, hello to those of you who are listening to us in the future. It's a really fascinating concept because we are recording this. Uh, This does come out in a podcast version. Uh, It'll come out actually Monday, Catherine, Monday, Monday. uh, a few days from now. Monday at noon, I think, for those who can't wait all day. Exactly. Monday at noon in the recorded version. So hello to those of you who are listening uh, to the live version of this as well. Everybody needs to understand. Everybody needs to know this is live. We are working without a net here, and we're just going for it. So uh, as you come in, one of the things that we ask, no matter where you are, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, uh, our huge following on Twitch, uh, say hi. Let us know that you're here. Let us know where you're joining the conversation from. Uh, It is always fun to see how far around the globe, and I mean that quite literally, because often we spread from Anaheim to Australia. And it's fun to see where everybody is in the world in this conversation. It also helps us make sure that we're actually live on all of these different platforms. Um, but uh, say hi. Let us know that you're here. Even if you're just listening in, even if you're trying to multitask while this conversation is going on, say hi. Let us know that you're here. And I think without further ado... It's about time that we introduce our special guest today. What do you think? Yeah. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. If you haven't been joining us this week, uh, we've sort of had a, had a theme for the week. And the theme for the week uh, we've been talking about all week is it's been about culture, about firm culture, your company culture. And I want to make it clear that uh, everybody, all of you have a culture. It's not just firms with employees. Uh, it is also the solo practitioners that are out there. You have a culture as well. Uh, this isn't a conversation just for firm leaner, leaders or owners or managers. Uh, it's also for the employees. Uh, it's all about this ecosystem that becomes our culture. And so it fascinates me that while we've been talking about culture all week, uh, and I've learned that a big part of culture resides within our team. I'm sure we'll talk about that more today, but I find it interesting. One of the things that I find interesting about our guest today is that he was cut from the basketball team two years in a row, yet he's written a brilliant book about being a teammate. He's built an entire company around being a teammate and being a team. That's fascinating to me. So obviously he's an author, but he's not a basketball star. He's a co-founder and a CEO. His book is called Do Better Work, and his company is Lessonly. Max Yoder, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. It was really funny to see me kind of pop up there. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Catherine, Jeff, this is going to be a blast. We're looking forward to it, Max. And, and, you know, that's just part of the magic that we have going on here, the whole popping up thing. Um, (laughs) We're doing everything we can to make this as fun as possible. Um, you know, there, there's a lot to dig into in your book, do better work. Um, for, for anybody out there that hasn't read the book yet, you need to pick it up. It's, it's an easy read. I'll say it that way. Um, I think it's really easy to consume. You've done a great job of, of, uh, boiling it down to concepts that we can understand. Um, Thank you. it's also, by the way, if you, if you have the Kindle plan, you can get it, I think free right now on Kindle. So if Could that's be, your I'm thing, not sure. That's cool. 
I think it is. I think it is. It's very available. Uh, of course, anywhere you buy books as well. But um, there's a lot to unpack there. I also know that there are, are some things, maybe slight tangents, that you're passionate about. And one of those things is perfectionism. So if it's okay with you, I want to ask, I want to start by asking, um, where does perfectionism come from? Jeff, I wish I knew. Um, I only know where I want it to go. Uh, and where I want it to go is uh, to be a less pervasive um, presence in, in my life and the lives of people that I love and the lives of people I've never met because I find it to be a very self-limiting, self-defeating, um, uh, yeah, unproductive game. And uh, I like to compare it to wholeness, uh, where it's kind of the antithesis of perfectionism is, whole, is wholeness, where I can recognize that I have above average qualities, average qualities, and below average qualities, just like everybody else. And, you know, I'm a human. Uh, and if I try to be a perfectionist, I have to deny my humanity. I have to deny, deny the things that don't come naturally to me, the things that are outside of my, you know, core wheelhouse, the things that I don't do well. And I'd like to accept all those things because I've found across every kind of spirituality, every religion, everything that kind of helps the human uh, navigate the human experience, uh, acceptance is, a, is a, like a central part, if not the central part uh, of navigating the human experience, accepting what's happening with ourselves, who we are, and accepting what's happening with other people and in the world. Um, and acceptance doesn't mean agreement, but just looking at it clearly. Because if, if I can't look at something clearly, I have to contort it, distort it, uh, and uh, yeah, see it uh, not for what it is, but for maybe what I want it to be. Um, and that can get me off track real fast. So I think perfectionism is a plague. Uh, and I've heard, this, I've heard it described as the world's greatest con game. And I, I agree with that. It's a con game because you can't win uh, and, and you won't be better for, for playing. Yeah, that, that's a great point. The, you know, so maybe even going down that path a little bit further, what do you think is the real threat? And, you know, like I said at the beginning, we have an audience that I'm going to assume today is uh, filled with a lot of architects. There may be others, right? There we may have uh, other creatives here, uh, other professional services, doctors, attorneys, uh, accountants, etc. You know, a lot of expert type people. Uh, what do you think the real threat of professionalism is, especially in the context of, of quote unquote, being an expert? So when you say professionalism, are you kind of saying like professionalism? Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't oh, mean you're, you're, you're good. You're good. Yeah, just wanted to make sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfectionism and being an expert. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would never show up to a situation and call myself an expert. I think that sets the bar real high. Uh, do I, do I have competence in areas? Yes, um, but, but the world is too chaotic for me to be an expert uh, across really anything. And people are too chaotic, and uh, and events are too chaotic for me to, you know, offer you expertise. What I can offer you uh, is is some level of experience. Um, but by no means would I consider myself an expert because um, if I'm competing against other experts, I think what I'm what you're going to find is uh, somebody who comes in and says, hey, I have experience, but I'm not an expert is much more likely to say I don't know when they don't know is much more likely to ask questions when questions um, would clarify things, whereas the expert might be held up as somebody who should just know the answer. And I'm a firm believer that uh, the idea of we should just know answers is a quick path to mediocrity and is a quick path to. Uh, struggling with things that we probably could have avoided, and what I mean by that is, you know, we st I stop asking clarifying questions when I'm when I'm an expert. Uh, I potentially stop um, 
uh, being vulnerable when I'm an expert. Uh, not necessarily, you know, I could be taking my own definition of expertise uh, here and applying it broadly, but I'd be concerned about being an expert in anything because uh, life's too challenging for us to really see around all the potential corners. I don't even know what all the corners are. Um, so I would just say I have uh, experience, uh, but not necessarily expertise. Well, I think that is a really great point, especially in the context of, of architecture and architects, right? We've got a lot of people in this audience that, um, you know, their whole career is based around exploration and finding solutions, mm-hmm. uh, finding solutions to your pro your, your project, your problem. Yep. Uh, if you need to build out a, uh, a new office space for Lessonly, right. As a, yep. as an example, I know you guys moved, it's probably been a couple of years ago now, but, yep. um, I, I, I think, you know, what you're talking about and asking asking the questions, um, the vulnerability, I think that plays really well in the world of the exploration that a lot of a lot of these professionals that are in the audience today, it's, it's there every day, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I just, I just, I just, I despise the rigidity of, you know, of knowing the answer and, you know, and being an expert uh, because I think that rigidity, I want looseness. I want flow. I want you and I today to flow in a way that, uh, is conversational, you know, and when we're not, where we're, where we're more in our, um, yeah, in our flow state instead of, you know, our, uh, our brain that might, might kind of paralyze me if I think too hard. Um, <laughs> when I, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm really conversational, you know, I'm a more in a more emotional state. Right. Uh, than I am in my kind of rational brain. So um, I like to engage with people like that, no matter what level of work I'm doing, whether I'm making art or I'm trying to solve somebody's business problem, because I think that's where people open up um, and communicate what's on their minds. And I think communication and, and, and relationship have uh, an equal sign between them. Strong communication tends to equal strong relationship. Weak communication tends to equal weak relationship. And I think business and life, what's more important than relationships uh, with myself and with other people. So I want to communicate well. And the rigidity and perfectionism will decrease that communication in my experience. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, it's um, just just kind of thinking about what we've got coming up for context and clarity. I try to do these themes for the week. And like I said at the beginning, we've been talking about culture this week. So uh, we've talked about retaining employees. We've talked about communication. Um, and next week we're going to be focused on emotional intelligence and empathy. And, and mm-hmm. that's one of the things that, you know, as I, as I, as I think ahead to next week and even how to tie the theme for this week to the next week, um, I think what you're talking about is, is so critical because how can, how can we serve the people, right? We're, we're, whether you're a servant leader, whether you're a service provider, your professional services like architects and, and the others, how can you serve these people if you aren't connecting with them, right. uh, if you aren't asking the questions like you're talking about? Uh, it's just one of the things uh, that, that's tickling my brain a lot this week. Let's talk about it. I, I, I think that's, you know, the... Um, I, I think there can be a fallback many times to an order taker. If you, it, it's, I think it's one of the problems that we see a lot in some of the professional services. Hey, somebody comes to me, they tell me what, what they want. Uh, I'm just going to automatically crank that out. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Somebody came to me and said, Hey, I need a set of blueprints, which that just made every the hair on the back of the neck of every architect just stand up when I said that. It's so old fashioned of you, Jeff. I, I know it's old fashioned, but well. <laughs> all right. I need I need a permit set. Does that make you feel better? That's better. That's better. <laughs> but okay, well, you know, this is what they told me. This is what they're they were willing to pay. You know, is that really our role? Or is our role to ask those questions, to ask those probing questions, maybe have some of those difficult conversations that you, mm-hmm. that you talk about in the book. Um, where do we, where do we go off track when we become that order taker? Mm-hmm. How do we stay on track in terms of the emotional intelligence? In terms of of serving people better? Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think if we're an order taker, it's just not going to be that interesting, right? Because I think when somebody comes at us and says, I need something, they have a single perspective. And I think the job of any teammate or any relationship is um, to add different perspectives, not necessarily challenge the other ones, but just to be a different flashlight on the globe. So if we think about a globe, you know, in the darkness, each one of us has a flashlight on that globe. It's only going to shine so much light on so much of the globe, right? You can't shine a single light on a globe and catch the whole thing. Um, but we get a couple flashlights on there. My perspective's added, your perspective's added. We might get a, a clear a sense of what we're looking at. Um, and if it's a big globe, we might need a lot of flashlights, you know? Um, we might have to take some guesses. Uh, but I, I hope you get the idea of, you know, each one of us can can reveal something. And ultimately, there's going to be a day when we have to decide, you know, what we're going to do together. But let, let's find some flashlights on the globe before we jump to that. Um, because we might find that our initial instinct or initial intuition uh, was just a single perspective that could have been enhanced or uh, or or adapted if we spend a little more time communicating. Yeah, um, I, I, go ahead, Catherine. Oh, well, I, I just wanted to say that when I was reading your book, it really struck me that it's kind of like this anti-fear book, and I feel like, especially mm. in business situations, people are afraid to speak up or afraid to ask questions or afraid to look like they don't know what they're talking about. So, I you just your book gives people permission not to uh, really worry about maybe people, what they think of them, mm-hmm. you know? So to me that I, I really liked, I really like that. And then also in your videos, how you were saying that the book was really all about relationships, any kind of relationship. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That's a beautiful takeaway. Like the fear stuff that is beautiful to me that that's what stuck out to you. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm always asking questions and I embarrass myself sometimes with how many questions I ask, but I mean, life is kind of, if you're all shut down and have it figured out, or act like you do. What's the what's what's it all about? Yeah, you pretty, pretty much narrowed your opportunities there. You know, yeah. like uh, the perfectionist has to make their world smaller over time if they want to stay a perfectionist. Uh, right, and right. I don't want to, so I want to make my consciousness expand over time, not not shrink. My biggest fear is becoming a sliver of my of my soul. You know, over time, I go from a whole circle to a sliver of it because you know I've just you know killed myself over time. Uh, that's yeah. my biggest fear. And I want to become a bigger, bigger over time. So yeah, sorry, continue. No, and I do think that the perfection, the whole perfection thing has to do with fear too. I feel like that's why people are perfectionists. They're afraid to put their, whatever it is out into the world because it's not ready, but it's never going to be ready. That's the whole thing. And like you said, like with your previous company, if you had just asked other people's opinions earlier, it could have really enhanced your whole, um, your company, what you're yeah. doing, you know, but if you just keep everything to yourself, then you don't have that help. Like the flashlights you were just talking about. But yeah. anyway, I do have a question <clears throat> from an audience member. 
Go ahead. I need to say myself. Here, I'm going to add it to the screen. Mm, okay. There it goes. So as an architect, we are we need to be as perfect as possible, meaning we can't make big mistakes in the construction documents. I mean, really, that's the only place you can't make mistakes. I feel like all the rest of it, you can have good and not great ideas and throw them out and get feedback and everything. But some architects feel like they need to be perfect in their in their construction set. So yeah. so how do you how do you do good, competent work like that and let go of the perfectionism along the way? Yeah, so I do not pretend to know how to be an architect. Um, so I, I, I'm sure there are places where precision is incredibly important. Perfection, I think, is different than precision. Uh, I think something can be precise, and you know, it's perfect as a as a as a subjective standard. True. Um, uh, but I think you know there are times when precision matters, and I do not deny uh, folks of making the inv extra invested effort in getting something to be precise when it needs to be. Um, when I when I worry about perfectionism, I worry about limiting our options about uh, limiting you know, the potential for what that precise final draft could look like. Ultimately, we have to make a call and we have to dial that call in. I worry about doing it too early. In chapter two in the book is sharing before you're ready, which is about bringing more flashlights to the globe, um, seeing different perspectives, choosing the one that we all agree you know, excites us and motivates us and energizes us and fits the, fills the goal best. Um, then there's gonna be a time when we gotta make sure that that scales for 30,000 people. I mean, that's my equivalent on the, on the software engineering side is we build a feature um, and we have to make sure it scales for, you know, millions of people uh, uh, at, at any given time. But, you know, for one customer who's got 30,000 people in there, they're going to hit it all at once. Um, and that's a time to be more precise. Uh, but it's not, you know, being precise too early can limit our options and can cause us to, uh, yeah, just wouldn't be precise too early. I think there is a time for precision. Uh, and I think those two things, you know, to each, to each time their own. I think that's a, I, that's a great distinction. Um, precision versus perfection yeah um th yeah that that that's it, it's it's interesting I'm, I'm trying you know i'm trying to get my head wrapped around you know it's it's almost it, when you define it that way it's almost the two two uh diver diverging uh paths there so that's thank you for saying that uh what's this one Catherine? yeah this is neat hey mark thanks for the note on my audio um you mind if i read this one Catherine? Go for it. Please go ahead. Yeah. And, and Mark, tell me if the audio is coming in a bit better. I might have been holding yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, sounds good now. Yeah. Great, great, great. Uh, he, he, Mark asks, how can we be vulnerable and open and flexible and honest and find flow and be perceived as a leader with the answers and solutions? Um, our clients and employees expect us to know the answers. Yes. Uh, I love this. I actually wrote about this very recently. I, I was speaking to a team at Goodwill um, and was asked a very similar question. This is a question that... Uh, uh, comes up a lot because I think it's easy to think in kind of binary of I'm either I either know the answer um, or, you know, I'm I'm not leading. Uh, and what I what I like to think of this as um, uh, in a moment, I can say, hey, I am confident we're going to figure this out. I'm just not yet sure how. Uh, and what I'm doing when I say I'm confident we're going to figure this out is I'm expressing the certainty people need, which is we're going to do this. But then the uncertainty of I'm not yet sure how. And then what do I do after that? Well, I invite people in to help with the uncertain part. What do you think we should do? And I don't think people want to be on a team where a leader knows and says, here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to go do it. They want to be invited into the solution. So I don't think anybody has trouble with, uh, you know, it's not mutually exclusive is my answer. You can be uncertain and certain at the very same time. And in that sentence of, I'm not sure how we're going to figure it out, but I'm certain we can. Um, I'm expressing uncertainty fallen by certainty or vice versa, you know, depending on the cadence that I deliver it. And I don't think it's much more complicated than that. 
to, to just uh, make sure we bring them both to the conversation. What people don't want uh, in a leader is they say, I have no idea and we're never going to figure it out. Uh, that's, that's not going to be very inspiring. They also don't want uh, somebody coming in as far in my experience saying, I know exactly what we're going to do. Just take my orders. Um, so uh, yeah, the, there's certainty and uncertainty at the very same time. And I find that anything that is, uh, I find the beautiful kind of transcendent stuff tends to have, uh, this is not an original idea. Um, this has been exposed to me through, you know, as much as I can learn about uh, spirituality and religion and the, and the reasons we keep creating it. Um, well, one of the things that, uh, you know, spirituality has taught me is, uh, that two things that seem like they're two opposite ends of the, of the, on the pole polarities, bringing them together at the very same time, uh, is when we find something divine. And I think that's what we're doing with vulnerability is we're saying, I don't know, but I bet we'll figure it out. And at the very same time, there's a certain uncertainty in that same moment. And I think what, what I'm finding from spirituality is when you can bring those two things together, it's, it's almost a holier divine moment. You know, as you're explaining that it really brings to my mind a term that's that's thrown around a lot in the architecture circles and, and other professional services as well. It's the idea of the trusted advisor. Mm. Every architect out there wants to be seen as the trusted advisor, sort of the holy grail. And and you know, I could do an entire session on how to get there and how to and when you have to start earning that title basically. But I, yeah. I think what you're saying there really goes to being the trusted advisor, right? If I'm, if I'm hiring you as my trusted advisor, you're advising me, right? I'm not, I don't think automatically that you have absolutely every answer No, because at the same time, I I'm hoping, uh, or at least I'm imagining that my problems and my goals are unique. So how could you possibly have all the answers? Amen. You said it. You said it. This is how, you know, if, if we were to describe our best friend, we would say that, you know, we, we appreciate their certainty at times. We also appreciate the times when they say, I don't know. Uh, and, I, and I found that to be something that Dr. Kristen Neff, who wrote a book called Self-Compassion, has really helped me think about, which is um, how, would I, how would I respond uh, to maybe something that I'm judging myself for if my friend were doing it, my best friend were doing it. Just changing the context. You know, changing the context. It's not me anymore. It's my friend. Um, I, I'm re reading a book by Robert Sapolsky right now, who's a behavioral, uh, he studies behavior. And one of the things he talks about is in certain situations, people can give sage advice to somebody else, but then you ask them what they would do and they freeze. Um, and so, you know, let's just, let's just separate it from ourselves and say like, you know, how would I want some, my trusted advisor to show up to the room? And then let's be that, you know, be that. But if I'm like, well, how should I show up to the room? Then I can get muddled. Uh, and I think, think that one degree of separation can be very powerful. Yeah, uh, that's, that's revolutionary right there. Um, uh, I put this ahead. up on, it's not a question, but I just thought it was a good point about like, where does fear start in the design world? And, and I don't know if this is what, this is Rod, I think. Um, what, I don't know if this is what he meant, but is this what happens when we get up to present our ideas in architecture school and we're just ripped to shreds? So are we, is that where the fear is instilled in us? Mm. I'm just wondering if that's what Rod meant by this, but I mean, it's kind of interesting. That whole process is a totally different subject that I could get into a lot about whether that's a good way to nurture people's creativity and putting themselves out there when they are basically standing in front of a group of people just waiting to be um, embarrassed, I guess. 
kind of way that felt. Yeah, that's tough. That's really tough. And you know, the the gentleman, um, another gentleman who comes to, comes to mind, uh, and I, I'll, I'm going to oh, David Burns his name. He wrote this book called Feeling Good, and he's the one who calls perfectionism the world's greatest con game. He he had a, he had a gentleman named Hank, and he was, Hank had already fired 20 doctors, and now Hank was coming to David Burns to um to be the 21st doctor he fires. Hank's got a big anger issue, um, and uh, David wanted to really fire Hank because he felt like Hank was, you know, maybe encroaching on his space and he was trying to put up his boundaries, but he also wanted to be the guy who figured Hank out. Um, and one of, he called his, he called his teammates, you know, he called other, other therapists and said, you know, what should I do? And somebody said, this is the golden opportunity for you to practice patience and, and, um, and criticism and, and acceptance of criticism. So he reframed and reappraised the situation with Hank. It's a golden opportunity to learn how to take criticism from a highly critical, angry person. Um, and, and that changed everything for him. And the thing that he did with Hank is he said, um, I want to hear more of what you don't like about me because Hank was very critical of me. He said, tell me more, Hank. And it totally neutralized Hank. Hank didn't want to tell him what he didn't like about him when he was invited to. Um, mm -hmm. So how does that relate to, you know, the criticism uh, in architecture school? Well, let's consider it a time when we develop the capacity to hear feedback that we may or may not agree with um, that can cut. And let's say, we're, why do we allow it to cut us? You know, why do we allow that to cut so deeply? Because it's me allowing somebody's words to, to, to hold on. Right. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so let's, let, and I'm not saying that's easy to do. I'm saying that that is one way to re reappraise the situation and say, this is my perfect opportunity to learn how to take criticism and still believe in my own ideas. Very good point. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, you, you said it a minute ago, it's, it's not, it's not easy to do. Right. No, and so some no. of these things that we're talking about and a lot of what's in your book, um, in, uh, do better work, you know, the idea of, um, sharing before you're ready yeah, and getting to agreements, um, having difficult conversations. Some of those are really scary ideas yep. for a lot of us. So do you have any, do you have any tips on how to let go? I mean, being vulnerable is a big part of the book as well. Well, it's a yeah. first chapter, right? It is. Um, yeah. So do you, do you have any tips on how to get over that fear? Yeah. So I, I would say you, you mentioned that these things, um, they're not easy. And I said, this, I said the same, I consider them simple and hard. And what I love about simple and hard is, um, I think the things that are most beneficial to our lives are simple and hard, uh, you know, moving more, eating well, getting the right amount of sleep. They're simple, but they're hard. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the, uh, the most important things in life, that's where, that's the axis they cross is they're simple and they're hard. And, and I, I think we like things, uh, I, I'll speak for myself. I've historically been enamored by complicated, um, answers to complicated <laughs> problems. Cause I think I thought they were more intelligent. And now I see that there's really nothing intelligent about solving a complicated problem with a complicated answer. You know, how do we bring simplicity? How do we bring something fundamentally simple, though difficult to a situation? And I think that's what. I tried to get to in these chapters to ask clarifying questions. It's simple. It's hard. It's hard because I'm scared. It's hard because being vulnerable in a situation is always going to be uncomfortable, right? I'm dropping my armor um, and I'm exposing my, something I don't know. And somebody, if they want to, can come in and stab where I've just exposed. Now, the beautiful thing is I don't want to be at the whims of somebody who is so hurt that they want to hurt me uh, because I happened to be vulnerable in the moment. So this is my chance, going back to David Burns, to practice not giving a hoot um, what the most judgmental people around me want to judge me for, because what I've realized is highly judgmental individuals, um, tend to be uh, highly hurt, sad, lonely individuals, right? Um, there's, I'm not judging them for that, but, uh, when, when I, when I, if, if I feel incredibly judgmental outwardly to the world, it's probably cause I'm incredibly judgmental of my own self. Um, and so 
what does that tell me? Well, I don't want to be at the whims. I don't want to be led by some of the most uh, hurt people that are out there. Um, I, and what I find is people who are compassionate with themselves and compassionate toward others are the least judgmental among us. Um, so I don't really have to worry about them judging me because that's not their prerogative. They're not sitting there looking for a, an angle to stab into my wound. They're sitting there and going, that's a human who deserves compassion, just like I'm a human who deserves compassion. So my big point here is, I don't, if you want, if you want to judge me, it's your problem. And, uh, I will listen to criticism, uh, that, uh, you know, as it comes at me and I, it will be the stuff that is resonant with something that I probably need to work on will hit me a different way. Um, than the stuff that is just somebody trying to hurt me. Uh, so I'll filter through it. I know my problems. I think we all know our own problems, you know, I, and, and I think when somebody points them out, uh, we, we know it. Um, but I'm not going to be at the whim of the hurt person who just wants to hurt. Uh, because I want to live my own life and I ultimately forsake my life. If I allow the hurt, the hurt people to guide me, um, just not how I want to live. So letting go of judgment has been a big thing for me. Um, there's things I can still learn from it. And I have a square squad, which is which what Brene Brown recommends. A square squad is this idea of one inch by one inch piece of paper, write down the names of the people who love you, respect you, and will tell you the truth. So I can come to that square squad and say, hey, somebody said something that you know was initially hurtful to me, and I'd like to validate if you think that you know I could work on this thing. And the square squad will go, yeah, Max, you've, you know, yeah, totally you can work on that. Uh, you know, patience may be one of the things. Or they'll go, no, Max, you know, I think that person um, was just hurt. You know, and I don't, and I have not seen you to be that way. So finding this group that allows the criticism to kind of filter through them and validate or invalidate it, I think is a very important. So I don't shut myself off from kind of all feedback. That makes sense? Yeah, it, it yeah. makes sense. I, yeah. I have a practical question about your square. Yeah. So you said an inch by an inch. So yeah. that's like, could be two names or maybe four names, or if you were yeah. really small, eight names. Yeah, you use both sides. Yeah, and you can abbreviate oh, if you want. Sides. Okay. You can use you can abbreviate if you want. Um, I think the big idea is just to limit. You know, if you can fix. Yeah, six yeah, I get that idea, there. but I didn't know how many you thought. You know, you would four names. Yeah, I I have I have ten ten to twelve people in my square squad, uh, and um, different folks who understand different parts of my life better. Uh, but yeah, I I I think. I get your point. Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't have a point. I, I was asking I, just a question about how many names I should put on the square. Fair, fair. I should have said I, uh, I, I get, I get the question. Um, okay. and, I mean, just uh, practically speaking, I'm like very practical in the actionable items here. So yeah, yeah. Well, give one a try, and I think you might find an inch is a little more room uh, than than you might think. Oh yeah, yeah, um, I know it is. And then try both sides. Uh, I'll try both sides. Be a really cool tip. Yeah. Let, All right. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this because. You know, we're talking, we're talking about those hurtful people mm -hmm. and, you know, on some level, you know, we're, we're a little bit in the theoretical, Catherine just mentioned being practical. Architects have clients, you at Lessonly, you have customers. Um, how do you, how do you deal with maybe negative feedback or how do you deal with the the interpersonal i guess we could say of the customers or clients in the same way that we're talking about right now yeah yeah so what i, I want to be real clear when i talk about you know hurt people hurting people we're all hurt people hurting people i'm not some healed guy who's never hurt somebody i mean i'm talking about all of us right i'm just i'm just pointing yeah. out that that if each person is doing their own work to heal um, then I bet we'll be more compassionate to one another and we'll be less inclined to judge. But to answer your next question, um, how do we deal with a, a customer who is maybe hurt or angry? 
um, my, my, my best friend and business partner, Connor Burt does it excellently. And what he does is he shows up to that, uh, that conversation precisely the same way, whether that person were gleeful or not, he shows up calm. He shows up with, uh, an, an attitude of let's fix this together. Um, he does not show up and engage in a fight. Uh, and even if that person baits him into a fight, he will not take the bait. Uh, and it's amazing to watch because I am a lot easier, uh, more easily hooked uh, than, than he is to, to kind of push back. What he, he kind of has this intuitive sense of, of uh, the, the Tao Te Ching, this idea of, you know, uh, not uh, kind of letting the, the motion of the ocean go, not resisting things that are happening, but instead using whatever is happening. And maybe um, uh, going with that flow, but nudging it in the direction that we want it to go. He does not. Uh, he does not try to fight back because uh, when we fight back, what we do is we create counter resistance to resistance, and then what does the resistance do? It pushes even harder. And so as soon as we're arguing, we're both losing. Um, but if I'm de-escalating, uh, we can both start to win. And Connor just goes straight to de-escalation. Um, and you know what, what? What tends to happen is that person either is is not willing to self-regulate their emotions and de-escalate with him, which then they they it tends to look pretty silly, right? Because if he's not there to fight and they're fighting, it just starts starts to look pretty silly. Or they de-escalate and they come back and they say, "Hey, thanks for talking about that. I'm sorry if I got a little, you know, I got, sorry if I got a little hot under the collar." And then he goes, "No problem," and he really means it, no problem. Um, but he just shows up how he wants them to be showing up in that moment, uh, and. I don't think life is much more complicated than that. How do you want people showing up in the moment? And are you showing up that way? If not, then say, I'm sorry, or recalibrate and get there. Um, but, or just show up that way, you know, and I don't think it's much more complicated than that. And I think that's a huge, hugely beautiful um, and, and uh, important uh, way to think. That's an amazing statement. I'm going to show up the way that I want them to show up. Yep. That's, and it's, that's it's, it's so hard. It's hard because we're mimicking creatures, Jeff. We're mimicking. We mm -hmm. mimic one another. So we have to resist that mimicry of if somebody trudges to the table and, and is mad, if I trudge to the table and am mad and my wife responds with anger um, or I respond to her with anger or she trudges to the table, I'm mimicking, right? Um, but, but why am I mimicking? Well, why am I frustrated in that moment? It's because I want something to show up a different way. So I, I got to show up that way. And it's really hard to do. And I have to apologize for not doing it a lot, but I'm either doing it or I'm apologizing. And it, it, when I apologize, the cool thing is I'm, I'm modeling there as well. It's all about modeling, right? How do I want you to show up to the, to the table? How do I want you to show up to the room? Well, when I apologize for not showing up that way, I'm doing what I want the other person to do should they make a similar error, right? I want them to show up and say, hey, sorry about that. So I'm, I'm modeling either way. I'm either knocking it out of the park or I'm making a mistake and apologizing. And either way, I'm modeling. Hmm. So, in, you know, in that moment too, I mean, you're, you're having, you're, you're having these amazing human interactions. And as you're describing that, I'm also thinking about all these conversations we've been having this week about culture and I'm going, uh, and I know this is, this is part of the point as well. What an amazing leader, right? If, if, if every one of our bosses, if every one of our firm leaders did exactly what you were just talking about, how, how wonderful would we think that leader was? And, um, you know, on, on the flip side, because like I said earlier, some of these, uh, in the audience today will be solo practitioners. So they don't yeah. have, um, employees, but they're working with consultants. Probably they're certainly working with clients, uh, if they're in business, but, um, but taking that idea, um, from from dinner with your wife to you know your role as CEO of Lessonly, I think that's yep. amazing as well. Yeah, and I have to have people around me who show me how to do it, 
I mean, this is an insight of watching other people who do that and being so profoundly moved by it that I'm like, that's how I want to be. You know, like they, they showed me some gold and I was like, I want to be like that. Uh, and you know, I, I would, I would describe the modeling behavior as if you want to see it, be it. That's the, you know, that's the, the quick tagline. It's just a, a different riff on the kind of uh, quote that is generally attributed to Gandhi around, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Right. And, and right. it's rewritten because people don't hear be the change you want to see in the world anymore. It goes one and one out the other. So we have to, you know, bring new life to old gold. Um, and that's old gold that needs new life because it's still just as relevant, right? Um, so we need to continually re-riff on that same concept, give it new words, give it new articulation so people hear it again. And the alternative, to if you want to see it be it is, um, I give what I get. So if I've gotten abuse, I give abuse. If I've gotten a short stick, I give the short stick. Um, and it and that that is just a that's an escalation world of if I, violence is done against me, I I, I give violence elsewhere. Um, and if you want to see it be it is a de-escalation world. Uh, uh, generally, in, in my experience, a de-escalation world because I am going to show up with calmness if that's what I want to see in this room. Um, and if I want to see somebody who pushes for something they believe in, then I'm going to push for something I believe in. Um, you get the idea. Uh, but you know, I give what I get is dangerous as hell, and it's really, really common. It's it's more just than I think the natural response. I think I think that's an excellent point. You know, it. Um, another thing that strikes me, the um, is is that, of course, we all have different personalities. You mm -hmm. said it before. We all have different strengths and different weaknesses, and and somewhere in between. Um, oftentimes. I think there are people in this profession that, um, you know, I, I think they're, they might have a mindset, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somehow not good enough or, mm -hmm. you know, back to this idea of perfectionism, I guess, uh, I'm worried about, you know, Catherine was explaining it earlier. One of the one of the parts of this culture and architecture, uh, that many people experiences, um, literally or figuratively or close to literally uh, an almost beatdown in architecture mm -hmm. school. They come out, right, with some residual from that. So one of the things that strikes me about what you're saying is it takes a certain strength to oh, yeah. do some of these things that you're talking about. So what about, what about those that, that uh, may still be suffering from their experiences may still be carrying those things. Is there any advice for finding that strength to do these things that you're talking about? Yeah. So I, I relate that, um, that, what I'm hearing from you, um, cause I don't know your world as well as you do, but, but I relate to a friend who's in, uh, who's a lawyer and, um, he he said very similar things about his experience kind of raising up in the in the legal world of it just became toxic to him and he felt like uh, each you know so many people around him were uh kind of didn't didn't want to see him win you know didn't want to see him succeed it was a very competitive cutthroat thing so let's go back to if you want to see it be it uh if we go back to if we want to see it be it i can spend all day for the rest of my life complaining about whatever field i'm in and the gaps that it has um, or I can, I can do the thing that I want everybody else to do, uh, which is say, I'm not going to participate in, in those gaps. Um, I'm, 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 I refuse to, if I don't like where I work, um, I'm going to, I'm going to vote with my feet and I'm going to find a different place to work that believes in the same things that I do. The easy thing to do is go, I got to stay here, right? I got to, I got to stick here around it or I can change this place from the inside. You know, you know, when you can, and you know, when you can't, you know, you, you know, when you can change the system and when you can't, I, I believe you do. Um, so my, I guess my point is, uh, it, venting is different than processing. Uh, 
Um, and I think venting, uh, uh, what I've learned about venting, and I didn't make this up, this is people who study um, emotional processing. They find that people who vent uh, tend to feel better immediately, but then long-term feel worse. People who process, who, under, who, who, who engage and say, why do I feel frustrated? Why do I feel sad? Where is it coming from? Um, do that hard work. They don't tend to like doing the processing part, but they tend to feel way better after. So one of them has immediate, immediate release, right? The venting. I release the vent, but I don't feel better over time. I actually become more entrenched in my frustrations. When I process, it's, it's harder to do up front. It's harder to take the time to emotionally process, to talk into a voice recorder, to write down my feelings, and to try to sort them out. Um, but I have longer-term rewards. Uh, in the same way, it's easy to vent about how shitty the world is. Um, and in that moment of venting, we might sit there and feel better uh, and feel like, well, you know, at least, you know, we're better than whatever world is around us. But you are the world. Uh, you know, you, you, you are the world. And if you see the world as bleak, it might be because you see things in your life as bleak. Um, you know, we see the world. Uh, I've heard a quote once that I love is we see the world um, as we are, not as it is. Um, so how do we heal ourselves? You know, how do we get ourselves in places that support us? They are out there. It's going to require work. It's going to require vulnerability. It's going to require risk taking among all things, risk taking. And I think one of the challenges of the world is not everybody is built to take risks. Um, like one, one of my friends said, we have a particular word for people who, um, who, who uh, will take risks for gain instead of take risks to um, not lose. And he's like, it's an entrepreneur. People who take risks for gain uh, are very different than people who take risks to not lose. And a lot of us take risks to not, or, or avoid risks to not lose, right? And entrepreneurs take risks to gain. Um, and I think we all need to remember that a life worth living is one that has risks. Have you ever read Viktor Frankl's book, The Man's Search for Meaning, uh, where he talks about being in the Holocaust camps? I have not, but I'm- Okay, it, it, please do, please do. Uh, if you need a shot in the arm, holy moly. What's so, the name of that book again? Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And, and he explained something that was explained, you know, by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, but he modernizes it, which is um, we get to choose uh, what we relate to any given event. We get to choose uh, what we uh, ascribe to a given event. But uh, what he really, uh, what, the reason I bring him up is he says, meaning in life can come from anywhere. We can ascribe meaning to anything. People, humans tend to find it in three places, work done, uh, work, work done well, uh, love loved and suffering suffered nobly. So work done well, you know, we find meaning in doing work well. Uh, and us, you know, we converge around that idea. We find meaning in work done well and love loved and in suffering suffered nobly. Every one of those requires risk taking. I cannot do work well without taking risks, right? Asking the clarifying questions, putting my own creative personality on the line. I won't, you know, if I, anytime I share my work, I'm putting my creative self on the line, right? For somebody to judge it. That's risk. Loving is a big risk, right? When I love somebody, when I love my daughter or my wife, I extend my skin to them. And when they get hurt, a little bit of me gets hurt too. That's a risk, right? If I love too many things, I extend my skin to a lot of stuff. And then suffering, suffer nobly. Well, suffering is risk, you know, going through suffering is risky. We'd like to avoid it. My point is to have a meaningful life, risk has to be a part of your calculation, you know? Um, and I think a lot of folks would rather want the comfort and convenient life, but they don't want to risk, you know, they want the good life, but they don't want to risk. So if you think your, your, your profession is bleak, uh, risk something and, and make your part of that profession, not so bleak, easier said than done hard, simple, hard, right? I'm not trying to say that this is easy. I'm just saying that you get one life. Yeah, the there the mic drop quote in there though was was if you think your profession is bleak, take a risk. Uh, I, I love that. Um, there there's so so much good motivation that needs to come out of that. 
Thanks for listening. I, you could tell that that uh, I think you could probably tell that I could have gone on to that one for about 20 more minutes. So I, I hope I didn't go on too long. I'm happy to answer Mark's question. Uh, yeah, thanks for putting this up, Catherine. Um, yeah. I was trying Max, to find it on your website because I was thinking, what do you, um, yeah, how did you get into all this? Yeah. When you say all this, uh, you, you mean like kind of human relations or like living? Um, well, Max, I mean, Mark's, Mark's uh, question for those who are listening on the podcast is, Max, what is your origin story? How did you find your way to focus on this topic? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my, my spirit, man, uh, my spirit. Like I, I, so I have seen uh, deep suffering in a, a people who are deeply addicted uh, and um, what I realized as the so some people I love who are deeply addicted to substances that cause uh, perverted behavior, right? Uh, anger uh, and and just some really tough stuff to watch. And these are people I love. Um, so when I see them judged, um, it hurts me. And so in that moment, I say, uh, I don't want anybody judging that person who I love. So I'm going to find a way to learn how to not judge other people because there's somebody that, that all those other people are people who are also loved by someone, right? And I know how much right. it hurts to see the people I love harshly judged for doing things that I get why they're being judged. But if we find a compassionate state, we can see that this is a hurt person who's hurting, right? This is not somebody who chose to be addicted and loves being addicted. Um, but to see, you know, the anger and the sadness cast at them hurt, hurt me. So I was like, I don't want to live like that. Uh, I, and I, and I want to be the model for what I want other people to do when, when they see that person that I love who's being judged, I want them to say, Oh, I'm sure that's a tough spot that person's coming from. So that was a big encouragement for me. You know, this happened, uh, started in my life when I was in my early twenties, when I realized that somebody I loved was highly addictive, highly addicted. And it wasn't gonna, it wasn't a clear path to changing. And it's, you know, still a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a you know big opener for me, uh, and yeah, I hope that helps. I mean, I think that just opened my heart a bit to being like, I don't love what's happening to the person I love, you know. And so, what am I going to learn from it? And yeah. yeah, I hope that helps. Um, so somebody asked a question that uh, Catherine, did you see the one about can one do good work in a bad field? Can one be a good Nazi, for example? Um, thank you. Thank you. This is a Facebook user who said, can one do good work in a bad field? Can one be a good Nazi, for example? Um, I don't know how to comment on the good Nazi side. Um, I'm not educated enough on that. Uh, I think that's like me walking into a minefield. I'll say good work in, in a bad field, though, that part. Um, well, I don't know if the field's bad. I think that the people who exist in the field might uh, have learned some perverted behaviors. So I think you can do good work in there. And I think we, you, I think, I hope many of you are. Um, but I don't think the field's tainted. I don't think the water's bad. You know, I think there's a lot of folks who have learned a certain way, is what it sounds like to me about how they engage with one another. And in any given time in that field, you can engage differently. Um, and those people might not care, but you're still doing your job. You know, you might not change a single soul, but yourself, but that's changing the world right there. That makes sense. It, you know, one thing that that, I don't, I don't know why, but it triggers in, in my brain is, you know, this idea that we hear a lot and, and those that, that join context and clarity every weekday afternoon, hear me say this, or maybe, tired of hearing me say this, but, you know, this idea of a business model that hasn't changed by and large since the fifties, you know, it's this, this is the way we've always done it. This is our model. This is the traditional model. We talk about that sometimes. And so, um, I, I, I don't know if can one do work, uh, good work in a bad field really, uh, really ties specifically to that, but, you know, in everything that you're talking about and, and making these changes, right, for all the complaints that we might have about 
whatever, the way our, per, mm-hmm. our profession is perceived or the way that our clients treat us or the way that our boss treats us or whatever our context is. Um, and then especially in terms of this is the way we've always done it. Um, yep. And I, somebody had a, uh, oh, the philosophical question is, is calculated risk really risk? Is that really the, shouldn't we just be taking risk and changing those things? This is the way we've always done it. Oh, I'm still complaining about it. Shouldn't we just take the risk? Yeah, I, um, I guess, yeah, I think, I think risks are information, right? When the more risks we take, the more information we get, the more we stick with our current system, we're probably going to get information we already have. So I'd rather do some learning. And, uh, we, I do a book club with my buddies. It's been one of the neatest ways that we've kind of bonded over quarantine friends who I've never read a book with my whole life. And I've been friends with them since third grade. And now I read books. One of them recommended animal farm. Um, and, uh, and in an animal farm, uh, there are people who treat the animals, not very great on a farm. The animals overthrow the people and start their own farm. And they have all these great ideas for how they want to run the farm, but they don't change the goal of the farm. The, the goal of the farm stays the same. The same human goal is now the animal's goal, and they tend to go towards same, the same behaviors. So what does that tell us? Well, in systems thinking, we know that the greatest way to change a system is to change the goal of the system. Uh, because if we don't change the goal of the system, like if we don't change anything about um, the economic goal of America, which is the number one goal, as far as I can tell, for, for you know, economic growth, nothing's going to change in America. Uh, if economic growth is the, the central aiming point for us, then the system will, f- will push toward that and we won't see a lot of change. We have to change the goal if we want to see the system change. We can't just change the people is the argument and think the system's going to change because it doesn't. Like we've seen that enough times, right? Keep changing the people. You have different presidents. You, have this, you know, they're still bombing someplace, somewhere. They're still doing the same stuff. Um, my, my point is, uh, if, we, if you start your own architecture firm, change the goal of architecture from something that's different than the last architecture firm you worked at. What is your new goal? You know, and that can orient you around a whole different set of behaviors. Than the, but if you keep the goal the same, was well, to make as much money as an architect as possible, you might just get the exact same stuff like Animal Farm, uh, where, they, where all of a sudden the animals become the humans. Uh, and I think it's a really great analogy for systems thinking, which is the goal freaking matters a hell of a lot. And if we don't change the goal, the behaviors probably won't change. Yeah, I think that's another mic drop quote right there. You know, we've got to, if you don't like it, we've got to change the goal. Uh, that's, that's excellent. Um, so I'm, I'm reading comments about, <laughs> about animals now on the side of the screen there. It's uh, an interesting book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, George Orwell, is that you right? You got it. You yeah. got it. Pretty, pretty quick read uh, in my experience. It was like an hour and a half, two hour long. So pretty quick read. What yeah. other books have you read in the book club? Uh, we read, uh, we read Man's Search for Meaning was the first one, uh, which, which was awesome. Um, gosh, I'm blanking right now. First we did Man's Search for Meaning and then we did, oh, one that I recommended and I'm blanking on it. Um, I'll, if it comes to me, I'll let you know. Uh, do better work. We didn't really do better work. No, I wouldn't put my friends through that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know we're getting close to the uh, top of the hour here. So let me, let me maybe round this out with a couple of questions. First of all, why did you write do better work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you, you asking that, uh, the, the big idea, um, was I was writing notes and Kyle Lacey, our, our chief marketing officer said, Hey, we should put these notes into a book because people seem to like the messages. Um, and then ultimately, um, you know, we realized that wasn't a good enough goal. 
uh, like it wasn't a clear enough goal because um, like a bunch of notes put together don't necessarily make a cohesive message. So then we said, well, let's write a book that teaches people when they walk into Lessonly on the first day um, what we care about. And if we and, and if we do that in a way that is not lessonly specific, we just how we care about treating humans. Well, that could transcend lessonly, right? That could be bigger than our workplace. But if I write specifically to lessonly teammates, then I have my focus, right? I I know I it basically channeled my energy into I want each new teammate, I want each current teammate to have this. What are the challenges that I keep facing in my job that I'd rather not face anymore? Well. Not having difficult conversations was one of the challenges. People get real frustrated. They don't have the difficult conversation and the frustration just blows up. Not getting agreements, right? Not asking clarifying questions. People coming in and being like, I'm just really mad we're doing it that way. And I'm like, where did you get the idea we're doing it that way? And they're like, well, I just assumed based on what I heard. And I'm like, we got to ask clarifying questions. And, and I'm not judging these folks. I do the same damn stuff. But I, I wanted to stop. You know, the company was getting bigger and I wanted to stop. So ultimately it was like, what can we give to people from a guidebook standpoint that minimizes that? You know, so they come in and they say, I'm really frustrated. And I say, well, have you had a difficult conversation yet? Nope. Okay, go do that. Whereas beforehand, I had to listen to the whole explanation about what they're frustrated about. Uh, and then ultimately be like, okay, maybe you should have a difficult conversation. Now they come in they're like, I'm frustrated. Have you had a difficult conversation? No, go. You know how to do it. You know, and it just made my life a lot easier. Um, but ultimately, you know, I wanted, I've always wanted to write a book. And I felt like I got to capture my spirit a bit in that book. And it felt like the great, a great gift. I have a daughter that's six months old. And I, when I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pass away before her time. Um, but I know somebody could handle that book and she get a little piece of her dad. And I'm real pumped about that. Um, yeah. you know, and I try to write notes each week or every other week or three, every three weeks to our team that I want to hand off to my daughter saying she can get a piece of her dad, no matter where I am. Um, you know, I just, it, it matters to me to kind of get this stuff logged. That's awesome. That's, that's really awesome. Let me, um, uh, let me ask one more question. The title is do better work. So how do you define better work? What is better work to you? Yeah, uh, it is creating clarity and camaraderie in a relationship. So camaraderie is mutual trust and respect between two people. And clarity is understanding what matters, why it matters, how to do it when possible, um, what's happening, why it's happening, how it impacts me, how it impacts you. And both of these are muscles. We don't get camaraderie or clarity without, um, without working at them continually. A lot of us had clarity and then COVID happened and we didn't anymore, you know? So these are, th these are not static light switches like where, hey, clarity's on, camaraderie on, go, and they'll just stay on. They're muscles where we build them and in order to keep them, we have to keep building them. That's excellent. Yeah, if clarity was a light switch, I guess we wouldn't have context and clarity because <laughs> we do this every day. <laughs> I love the title, man. I do. Thanks for having me today. It was a blast. Really appreciate it, Max. It's been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciate everything you've shared with us today. Catherine, Jeff, uh, if you ever want to do it again, we can do it. I, I've enjoyed the time and I, I appreciate all the pre-work y'all did. Your pros. Thank you. Okay. Thank thanks you, Max. Max. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. And for anybody else that's out there, we're going to let Max go and we appreciate Max. But if you Thank want you. to stick around for a couple of minutes for the uh, uh to wrap this up with us, you're welcome to do that. We'll run this for another few minutes if you're ready and willing. I think that was a fantastic conversation. Anybody that's listening um, on the podcast version of this, maybe a week from now or a year from now or whatever, uh, one of the things that you missed was the passion in Max's face and in his body language. I mean, this guy, I'm sure it comes across just in his voice. Uh, but we have the benefit of seeing him on the screen and th this just exudes out of his pores. It's incredible. It's true. Yeah.
What are you drinking there? Tea in my Ruth Bader Ginsburg mug. Nice. Yep. It's my afternoon tea. Yeah. I mean, Max is, he is an inspiration and he is so right about just being, uh, putting yourself in someone else's shoes basically. And how, what is, where is this person coming from? If they're screaming at you for 20 minutes, as I was reading about earlier today, like if your client is screaming at you for 20 minutes, it's not really about you. It's hard. It's hard to take. It's really hard to take, but it's something's going on with them. So if you can just separate yourself and decide you're not taking it, totally personally, then that's what I heard from him. You can choose what you're going to um, take personally, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he made so many great points there. And so again, I would encourage everybody, we're, you know, we're not here to sell books for Max, but um, read the book or listen to the book or, you know, get it on Kindle or what, like I said, it's last time I looked last week as we were prepping for this and last week it was free on Kindle. If you have your, uh, whatever the Kindle account is called. Um, the other thing is that if you go to, uh, let me put it up on the screen here. If you go to dobetterwork.com, uh, you can find out more about the book, certainly, but also there's a series of videos where they basically go chapter by chapter. You have to put in your email address to gain access. Uh, I have not received a single email since I put my email address in there. Um, so I think it's it's definitely worth the trade, but basically Max interviews different business leaders on the topic of each one of the of the ch- of the uh, chapters of the book, and uh, I I just you know and again in preparation for this conversation today I was watching those those videos and there's so much there there's so much that we need to uh, bring into this profession out of those books in dealing with ourselves, in dealing with our employees or our consultants, in dealing with our clients. It's, uh, this is our families. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you caught that, but you know, when he's, when I asked him what do better work means to him, it wasn't strictly workplace, right? It wasn't strictly the, you know, the work of architecture or, you know, for him, software design or, or whatever. Uh, he included family, he included re- uh, relationships in that as well. Right. Yeah. Yep. And they say that he's wise beyond his age, but I think he might be about 33. Just yeah. saying. Some, some other wise person was 33. But... <laughs> so Somebody asked, what was I saw something about New Jersey in a uh, yeah is he from New Jersey I think that yeah. was um that was Jay Carulli who said that yeah, he's, he's not from New Jersey he's actually from Goshen Indiana um, he's uh, he's right around the corner from me here in Indianapolis uh, he's from Goshen Indiana which is where my uh, uh, where my son is headed in the fall for uh, for college so um, yeah cool. Uh, near South Bend, Indiana. Might know that more than than Little Goshen. Let's see. Any other, uh, do we have any other questions or comments that that we need to uh, entertain here before we wrap this up? Well, people say they're going to have to watch it again. I am also going to have to watch it again since I can't, um, I'm sure I missed some of it as I, try to read all the screens but yeah yeah yeah, he's very um 
meant, you know, he just was very, he meant what he was saying. He just felt it like he, like you were saying, you could see that. So, yeah. Yeah. He is, uh, he's an inspiring guy. And I, in the uh, podcast episode that came out this morning, one of the things that I said was, uh, I met Max the first time because I, I'm on the advisory committee for a leadership development program here in Indianapolis for young architects, the emerging professionals. And um, Max sat on a panel discussion in one of the um, one of the sessions for the cohort. It's probably two years ago now with COVID sort of being in between there. And just super impressed with Max. And you can see why I think um, – and especially for for the the young folks in the uh, leadership development program, very inspiring for them and, and very relatable. Um, you know, he, he he comes from the the software development side, but I think just about everything he talks about, I think, is so relatable to to uh, the profession of architecture or any creative or professional services. Mm. And Mark had said, I think it was Mark who was saying a couple times in there that it's it's um, relates to internet bullies as well. I mean, people mm-hmm. who are hurting are going to hurt other people. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that for would- me, that, that gives me a lot more understanding when something like someone's acting badly like that. Just think about something they're hurting if they're trying to hurt me or somebody else. So. Yeah, that that was one of my big takeaways as well as, you know, having that perspective. And you you mentioned just a minute ago, I think he attributed it to the Buddha. You know, we're going to take away what we want to take away from it. Um, I can can take some whatever I want away from the internet bully or the social media bully, I think is the way Mark put it. Um, I can take away the fact that, you know, there's a hurt person that's just trying to release something or I can – take away, Hey, there's someone that's, that's attacking me. And, uh, I think, you know, you, you said, I forget how you put it a couple of minutes ago. You were talking about a, a maybe a client that was, you know, it was, an, it was, I was reading about it on, on that's right. Uh, one of the Facebook groups. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've told this story before, I think, um, of a client of mine that, that, uh, called me. You know, I was in the car and I was on my way to a meeting and I, I, I had to lay the phone on the dashboard of my car without even putting it on speakerphone, right? And they're just, they're venting. You know, Max said that, used that term earlier. They're just venting and venting. And um, it, it really wasn't about me. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about what we were doing for them. But somebody had to let them vent, unfortunately, <laughs> right? Unfortunately, yeah. it was. It was me, I guess, that decided that they had to let him vent. But um, I like what he was saying about his business partner that that would just go in and and um, you know how they would handle that. Um, I don't know that I handled that situation right or wrong or well or not. I you know I just I literally laid the phone on the dashboard. <laughs> um, but I do know that if I had tried to jump in and, and argue or get defensive or something like that, it would have gone even worse than, right. than that was going. That was, that was a great lesson. So NVC, that came up a couple times and I couldn't remember what it was. I guess that's communication. Yes. 
That would be an interesting topic to talk about sometime also. We can do that. Uh, Anybody that really, really enjoys conversations like this, and and I'm always fascinated by the way these these themes for the weeks and these topics evolve. Um, a lot of, a lot of this is just serendipity <laughs> to be completely honest. You know, we're, we're trying to arrange topics and, and speakers and things like that. And, uh, two weeks ago we were talking about your value mindset, which I think tied some of that tied pretty well with this idea of culture this week. And then, uh, if you really like conversations like this, if you read the book, do better work, the idea of emotion, I don't know if it's ever, if this term is ever brought up in the book. I don't think so. Yeah, I I didn't, I didn't think so. But what they're talking about a lot is emotional intelligence. And next week, our theme, like I said earlier, is going to revolve around emotional intelligence, empathy, those types of topics. So if, if this is your thing, if these kind of conversations are your thing, make sure you're with us every day next week because it's emotional intelligence all week. How do we, how do we get it? Do we have it? How do we understand ourselves? How do we understand our clients? Um, what do you do I, if you don't have it though? Is Can you make it? I, I, I mean, think it's, emotional. it's one of the, how many types of intelligence are we supposed to have, Jeff? I don't know. I should read more about it. I just took the quiz. So I took the yeah. quiz on the emotional intelligence. Everybody maybe take the quiz before next week. So, mm. you know, yeah, we know where well, we stand in that. Yeah. Yeah. As usual, we'll announce next week's speaker, uh, ne- next week's special guest, Thursday guest uh, on Monday. And we'll put together some homework, you know, something that you can do to prepare for the conversation on Thursday. Um, so we'll we'll grab that quiz and we'll put it in in as a link so you can do that. We'll give you some other assignments as well. But um, um, but yeah, I, th- I think you can actually increase your emotional intelligence. Can you? I don't know. We'll see. Okay. I mean, can you, get, can you increase other parts of your intelligence? Sure. Why not? I don't know. I guess we'll talk about it next week. (laughs) Absolutely. We will. Um, To all of you out there. Thank you. Thanks for spending a little over an hour with us. Um, Thanks for all your questions and comments and uh, lots of comments about, I've got to watch this again. I've got to listen to this again. You, you can find this inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. You can find this on LinkedIn. Now, just just connect with me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way to find it um, on LinkedIn. You can go to the Entree Architect YouTube channel or the Entree Architect Twitch channel, and you can watch this as many times as you want. Uh, I think it was a fantastic conversation. I think there's a lot to dig into, a lot to understand, a lot to, to uh, unpack here. So um, yeah, go back, watch it, listen to it. Uh, and it will come out Monday at noon in the uh, podcast version as well. If, if that is your, uh, uh, if that's your preferred medium, um, I'll be back here again tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel, 4 PM Eastern only inside the Entree Architect community Facebook group as we are four days a week tomorrow. 
um, we're going back to our mini series that we do every Friday, or we have been doing um, for several weeks now and several weeks to come, talking about different digital and social media channels that architects could use, maybe should use, maybe shouldn't or use, should not uh, use, or should not. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about TikTok for architects. So right. uh, join us. Tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern, inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. Uh, I'll announce that topic as early as I can tomorrow morning, so you can uh, be reminded of that and you can get ready for that. Uh, I'll also be inside the Clubhouse app tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, uh, talking about the topic of the day, TikTok for architects. Looking for questions, looking for comments, um, best practices, no practices, whatever. But we'll talk about TikTok for architects in uh, clubhouse tomorrow morning as well. So with that, again, thank you everybody. Thanks for being a part of this. And uh, for any of you that have not joined us before, thanks for joining us. Maybe you can come back and join us again next Thursday, or if you're part of the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, join us tomorrow. We'll do this again. Um, take care of yourself. Be well, stay well. Uh, keep those around you safe and well, please. Still a lot of stuff going on around the world. And um, take a little bit of time to breathe tonight. Come back again rejuvenated and ready to go back at it tomorrow because we're going to do it again. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow. See you later. Thanks for listening to this week's Context and Clarity Live episode. Selfishly, I love these conversations because I get to be the go-between between you and some really incredible guests. To that end, I want to know what you think about today's guest. Message me on the socials. I'm really easy to find. I'm Jeff underscore Eccles everywhere. If you happen to run across a white-haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, yeah, that's not me. I'm the other Jeff Eccles. Oh, and if you have an idea for a future guest, tell me who it is and why you think they'd be a good guest for one of these conversations. Maybe we can get them on a future episode. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate you, and I'll see you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? 
<laughs> I did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.